It is March the 20th. It's 5.12 p.m. Are you with me, Sydney? Are you with me, Los Angeles? Are you with me, London? Are you with me, Kiev? All right. Are you with me, B'nai Brock? Curious Yoel? Jerusalem? Let's get a burst of uh, Tucker Carlson here. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, happy Monday. The dominant rumor on the internet over the weekend was that Donald Trump will soon be indicted, possibly even handcuffed on camera. Is that true? We can't say. We do know that Trump is the subject of a grand jury investigation in Manhattan. That's a city that voted against Donald Trump by almost 80% in the last presidential election. We also know that the grand jury was impaneled by a Soros-funded DA called Alvin Bragg, who looks and acts like a Tawana Brawley-era Al Sharpton. So we would assume, on the basis of that evidence, that it's pretty likely Trump does get charged with something at some point. But charged with what? That's the question that should matter. In a free country, laws are universal. Laws apply to all citizens equally, precisely because all citizens are considered equal. For generations, this was very obvious to American liberals. In fact, it was the basis of their worldview. That was back when liberals opposed Jim Crow and were not trying to reinstate it as something called equity. We are not liberals, but we retain the traditional American view, which is that laws must be applied equally or else they're not laws at all. Justice must be blind or else it is tyranny. So we spent the day with the help of a lawyer on our staff trying to assess the likely charges against Donald Trump. And here's what we found. Eight years ago, as he was running for president, Trump paid a porn actress called Stormy Daniels $130,000. Daniels alleged that she and Trump had at one point had sex. Trump denied that. He still denies it. But in exchange for promising not to repeat that claim in public, Trump, through his then attorney, Michael Cohen, sent Stormy Daniels a check. Was that legal? Well, we can answer that question. Because there was a campaign in progress at the time, officials at the Federal Election Commission later examined the transaction between Trump and Stormy Daniels. Federal investigators concluded that nothing criminal had taken place. And in fact, settlements like this, whatever you think of them, are common, both among famous people, celebrities, and in corporate America. The result is usually known as an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. In this case, you can believe whatever side you want to believe, but paying people not to talk about things, hush money, is ordinary in modern America. According to the FEC, there was no need for Donald Trump to report his payments to Stormy Daniels, nor was the money that he sent her through his attorney subject to campaign finance limitations. The FEC determined the entire thing was a personal expenditure. It clearly was. So what is the crime here? Well, the media don't seem very interested in finding out. This is Donald Trump. He's a criminal. Everything he does is a crime. Watch. Simply because he may have committed worse crimes, you don't let him off of lesser crimes. If you are, for example, seeking a prosecution for murder, if the guy gets caught drunk driving in another context before that, you don't just let him go because you have bigger fish to fry. Nobody is above the law, including Donald Trump. It doesn't matter that this is kind of a minor crime compared to some of the other allegations. A crime is a crime is a crime is a crime. That's what anybody prosecuting or a judge would say. A crime is a crime is a crime, as Mika mm -hmm. said. An indictment is an indictment is an indictment. When I hear people saying this is much ado about nothing, I think about all the members of Congress I served with and understanding Every single one of them would have been charged and sent to jail had they done this. I was reading the Bible, which said that that a man sows, that he may also weep. 
Joe Scarborough, ladies and gentlemen, telling us what a crime is. A crime with a woman. Okay. There's Al Sharpton lecturing us about the Bible. It's hilarious. Oh, the hypocrisy. But it didn't really answer the question. Why are we handcuffing Donald Trump? Liberals don't seem to care at all as long as it happens, as long as Trump gets handcuffed. But in fact, there's plenty of evidence that Trump committed no crime in sending money to Stormy Daniels. We don't have to guess. Consider the case of former North Carolina Senator John Edwards. Edwards was often described as a fiery liberal, but in fact, he was a populist. He ran for president twice and in the process infuriated the leaders of the Democratic Party by talking way too much about income inequality. They really hated him for that. Long after Edwards left office, Barack Obama's DOJ charged him with federal finance violations. So the premise of the case against John Edwards was that he had received a million dollars in gifts and that he spent that money in hush money payments to his mistress, with whom he later had a child. Obama's DOJ argued that the money that Edwards sent to his girlfriend amounted to campaign contributions. Edwards never reported that money, so Obama's DOJ tried to send him to prison. Well, in the end, the case fell apart under the weight of its own incoherence. So Obama's lawyers argued that any payment that could conceivably help a political candidate politically is by definition a campaign expenditure. There's no law that says that, by the way. They just made it up. But if you think about it for a second, it doesn't make sense. If that were true, flip it around. It would mean that candidates could use donor money and also taxpayer money in the form of federal matching funds to pay for any personal expense as long as that expense could conceivably benefit them politically. So candidates could take federal matching funds, tax dollars, to buy Ferraris as long as they argued those Ferraris would appear in campaign ads, etc., etc. It's nonsensical. So not surprisingly, John Edwards was acquitted in that case. It was a humiliating defeat for the Obama administration, but it also sent a clear message and set a precedent, which Alvin Bragg apparently is ignoring. So we don't know that an indictment's coming, as noted, and if it does come, we're not sure what it's going to say. We haven't seen it. But if Trump is indicted for sending money to Stormy Daniels, well, you'll be watching the abuse of law enforcement power. Oh, but you can't complain about it. Because as Congresswoman Maxine Waters has explained, political protests staged on behalf of Donald Trump are not constitutionally protected. They're domestic terrorism. Watch. This is Donald Trump uh, sending messages out to domestic terrorists uh, that he's worked with and he helped to organize for the invasion of the Capitol on January 5th. He's sending out a message to them to get ready to protest any arrests, uh, indictments, et cetera, that he may have. So he's basically uh, talking to the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, QAnon, KKK. Oh, January 6th. The only really organized group on January 6th was the FBI, of course. But consider the idea and where it's coming from. This is Maxine Waters. This is the lady who cheered on the L.A. race riots three decades ago. This is the very same person who just a few years ago said, and we're quoting, if you see anybody from the Trump cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, she's very old, get out and create a crowd. And you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. Basically necklace them. Okay, Maxine Waters. But she's a Democrat, so these are this is just a civil rights exercise. She's protected from domestic terrorism charges. And Alvin Bragg is too. He's a Democrat. And you should know, we don't want to impugn his character or anything. We don't want to suggest that there's a connection between politics and the indictment of Donald Trump. But Alvin Bragg did run for office promising, as a campaign promise, to indict Donald Trump. We're not guessing. 
He gave televised interviews about it. Watch. All right, so newspaper reports today say we could expect to see an indictment to be handed down against Donald Trump soon. Any thoughts on how you would handle such a high-profile case? Certainly throughout my career, I've gone wherever the facts have taken me. And the types of allegations that have been reported publicly, um, valuation of assets, um, uh, perhaps the use of, of, of shell companies, tax fraud. I, I did, I, I've done all these sort of cases. I've tried a mortgage fraud case. I've tried one of the most significant money laundering cases uh, in the New York region. So uh, of all the candidates, I sort of stand at the ready uh, with all the tools in the toolkit. Yeah, we're going to go after Trump. And by the way, he listed some real crimes there. And they have spent years trying to pin those crimes on Trump. They even got his tax returns illegally. Uh, and they found none of them. Not an offense of Trump, just true. So we wind up with this, which is piddling. But what's interesting is even as Bragg has been single-mindedly focused, Bragg, a graduate of Harvard College, on Donald Trump and his crimes sending money to a porn star, he has been not only ignoring real crimes, but downgrading felonies to misdemeanors and letting actual violent criminals out of jail as quickly as possible. On his first day in office, first day, Bragg, consistent with the ideas of the man who paid for his campaign, George Soros, issued a memo explaining his office will, quote, not seek a carceral sentence except in cases involving homicides, economic crimes, and a small number of felonies. Now, that was great news for people who commit violent felonies, including rapists like Justin Washington. Washington struck a deal with Bragg that allowed him to serve just 30 days in jail under the theory that his rape was really just second-degree coercion. So he got out quickly, and when he did, police say this same man sexually attacked five other people in the Bronx. He even tried to rape a homeless woman at 10 in the morning. Okay. So in another case, a career criminal who was arrested three times in four months for serious crimes, including assault and aggravated harassment, skipped court. And when police finally found him and hauled him to court, Bragg's, Bragg's office let him go in January of last year. Guess what he did when he got out? He murdered a woman. A growing makeshift memorial in front of a New York City apartment building honoring Christina Yuna Lee after police say a man followed her home and attacked her, stabbing her to death. This security video obtained by NBC News appears to show Lee being followed by the suspect. When they arrived, the door was barricaded. When cops went into the apartment, investigators say they found the body of a 35-year-old woman, later identified as Lee, in her bathroom and the suspect covered in blood. Police say Osama Nash was arrested and charged with Lee's murder. This was his eighth arrest since May of 2021. What's interesting is that no one cares. Where's Joe Scarborough on that? Is he upset about it? Is his wife upset? Power to women. Right. All the arch feminists who should be out there defending women, they don't care at all. So here you have a DA who treats violent felonies like they're misdemeanors, even when it gets people killed, who's unleashing criminals on the population, but then spending all of his time trying to destroy his political opponents. In this case, elevating a misdemeanor charge to the, a felony for the purpose of taking down Trump. Now, here's what we think, if there is an indictment, will form the core of the charge. Bragg seems to be alleging that Trump violated New York's Business Record Act, by falsely reporting the payout to Stormy Daniels as, quote, legal fees. Now, if this were true, it would constitute a misdemeanor, and the statute of limitations has already run out for that, for the bookkeeping error, assuming it even happened. 
But Bragg apparently is thinking about charging Trump under a felony version of the business records law, one that punishes businesses for falsifying records as a way to commit another separate crime. That would be the campaign finance violation, which, as we mentioned, was not a campaign finance violation. And we know that from the FEC, which polices campaign finance violations. And by the way, if it were, then that would be a federal crime, not something that Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, would be prosecuting. The whole thing doesn't make any sense at all. On a legal level, on a political level, it does, because Trump is running for president. So what's behind this? Is he acting alone? We may soon find out. Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, who sits in the House Judiciary Committee, is calling on Bragg to testify before the Congress. He wants to hear Bragg explain whether or not he's had any contact with the White House or the Biden DOJ. And if he has, maybe that will explain these charges. He also wants to know whether this prosecution will use any federal funds. Let's hope Alvin Bragg, who is committed to the rule of law, complies or is forced to comply very soon. But no matter what happens, if this indictment arrives, no matter who you voted for or plan on voting for, make no mistake, this is a turning point for the country. Now, the headline here is not that they're being unfair to Donald Trump again, though, of course, they are, or even that Trump is the former president of the United States. <laughs> who cares? <laughs> I mean, though, as long as we are indicting retired presidents, where are the charges against George W. Bush for invading Iraq under false pretenses and giving permanent normalized trade relations to China, which completely wrecked our economy? Where are those charges? Don't hold your breath. In Washington, wrecking your own country is not considered a crime. And, of course, George W. Bush knows that well, which is why he doesn't seem worried at all. Criticizing the ruling class, that's what they indict you for. But either way, Donald Trump's former job as president of the United States is not really the point here. Yes, of course you can indict former presidents if they've done something wrong. That's not what this is about. The headline here is that there is, as noted, a presidential race in progress right now. And if you check the polls, you will find that Trump is leading the Republican field. That's the unprecedented thing, taking out your opponent using the justice system. If the Democratic Party is allowed to do this, allowed to crush the presidential frontrunner, the main threat to their power, with a bogus criminal case, where does that leave us? We're done. Because that precedent will live forever. And voters will never again determine the outcome of a presidential election. It's remarkable when you think about it. So after all the yelling from permanent Washington about January 6th and how it was a threat to our democratic norms and the peaceful transfer of power. They've decided to completely short circuit our democratic norms, not to mention the peaceful transfer of power using the courts and prosecutors. What happens if they get away with this? No one seems to be thinking this through. Everyone's all spun up. But what happens if they get away with this? If they use the Justice Department in full view of everyone to settle a political score and to keep the White House, just to take a guy out of the race who seems to be doing fairly well. We'll destroy the justice system. And that's not a small thing. A functioning justice system has kept this country peaceful for hundreds of years. The purpose of a justice system is to administer justice so that citizens don't have to do it themselves. You outsource that duty to... Okay, big story. Keep an eye on it. And it just seems like a classic uh, case of overreach, right? People fight for what they believe in, but they lose perspective. They overreach, and then they're going to very likely reap the, the whirlwind. So 
this type of uh, prosecution of Donald Trump is very likely to increase the odds that he wins the Republican nomination in 2024, and it fires up. I, it, it seems to me that this raid on Donald Trump's home over record-keeping and now an indictment of Donald Trump again over record-keeping, it strikes me that this type of federal law enforcement and uh, New York law enforcement action probably fires up his supporters you know, by five times as much as it fires up Trump's opponents. So if you're a controversial figure or you are an activist on behalf of a controversial cause, what you don't want to do is fire up your opponents more than you fire up your own side. And it strikes me that these actions are going to fire up Donald Trump's supporters far more than it's going to fire up Donald Trump's detractors, as opposed to much of Donald Trump's conduct in the office of the presidency, where he fired up his detractors more than he was able to fire up his supporters, which is why the 2018 and 2020 elections were crushing defeats for Donald Trump. So let's uh, let's keep a, keep an eye on this story, and I can't believe that I'm I'm uh, paying attention to Richard Spencer again. And he tweets, the greatest danger for Trump is that he becomes respectable. This is what was happening in the fall with his low-energy, typically Republican presidential announcement in which he bragged about the stock market. Trump succeeds when he's viewed as radical, crazy, and a threat to the system. Well, it's not so much radical, crazy, but uh, a threat to the system, yeah. But you only want to come off as you know somewhat uh, crazy, crazy like a fox. You don't want to come off truly deranged. The DA's prosecution of some stupid payoff to a porn star can plausibly depicted as a witch hunt. True. The deep state is so terrified of his presidency, Trump will say, it will go to any length to stop him. Trump indicted, even Trump in jail, unlikely but potentially hilarious, is a powerful winning Trump. The establishment needs to understand this dynamic if it wants to stop him. It shouldn't listen to resistance voices who view Michael Cohen as some kind of hero, and not as a perennial flatterer and bootlicker, and who want to pursue the Marshall Avenatti strategy. Right. If the establishment goes down this road, it deserves to be overthrown by the January 6th goons. Interesting perspective there from Richard Spencer. And a friend of mine says, Last week I subscribed to Richard Spencer's Substack because I've been curious about this Charles Johnson character. He makes a lot of bold claims like uh, Martin, Martin Shkreli, Shkreli is tied to the Albanian Mafia and says things like, Last time I spoke to Peter Thiel. Well, I bet uh, Charles Johnson does speak to Peter Thiel at times. Charles Johnson presents himself as having genuine insider knowledge. Charles Johnson does have genuine insider knowledge. Currently, don't have a way of evaluating his claims. Well, you have to use your intuition and your common sense. But uh, if he's saying the last time I spoke to Peter Thiel, I would wager that he does speak intermittently to Peter Thiel. He did introduce... Matt Gates to his wife. He is friends with influential congressman Matt Gates, And my friend says, Richard does seem to be in the passenger seat of his own podcast when <laughs> Charles Johnson is around. So, yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. So there's plenty of reason also to be skeptical of, of many things that uh, Charles Johnson says, but there's also plenty of reason to take him seriously. He's someone you can neither dismiss nor fully embrace all right you have to use your common sense there's no easy way out
Right. Airbnb owner can't remove woman due to California's 30-day squad rides. This is my Don't trust no Airbnbs. Okay. There you go, y'all. Straight to the kitchen. I ain't going nowhere. So deal with it. She did sick. You know what I'm saying? And like I said, I've been trying to do the right way. I done went down there and got the... <clears throat> the, the, all the paperwork that I need to do to get her ass evicted out of my house, whatever, but that shit is a <laughs> process. I have to go through protocols, my other stupid legal blah, 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 bull. And then I just got them, the police just like just left my house, and I'm like, get this out my house. They're like, oh, she's a tenant now. She's a tenant. Oh, there's nothing you and the police, oh, okay? My door, that's all I know. Yo, door, this is my house. How about you get the out of my house how about that's what you do how about you get the out of my house how about you get the out of my house how about you get i i don't know why it's so bewildering why do homes and apartment buildings owned by blacks and rented out to blacks and section eight you know single black mothers why are they devalued compared to say homes and apartment buildings owned by asians it's just a, a mystery. It, could it possibly be that there is some bad behavior by a tiny proportion of the oppressed group that then causes all sorts of negative repercussions for the group as a whole? I mean, that's how the world works, right? A few Jews do something horrible, and Jews as a totality, you know, very likely to pay a price. Uh, a few Muslims do something horrible, and Muslims as a totality will tend to pay a price. So... We all tend to be affected when members of our group, you know, behave badly. Chat says, Charles Johnson seems like a nutter. Well, many people can seem like a nutter and still have some very sharp insights. So I don't, you know, don't believe any of the things that Charles Johnson's saying these days, but I don't dismiss, I don't know, a quarter or a third of them. Right. All the news here that is fit to print. Let's check in with Heterodox Academy. Sponsored by the National Association of Scholars. Academy. My Four reasons why Heterodox Academy failed. And uh, we're going to discuss this. Uh, it's caused quite a stir. And uh, it addresses issues of how do we preserve uh, intellectual and academic integrity in our degraded universities right now. And we're going to be uh, getting into into that. And so um, I'm just like to start off with uh, with... A question or a statement, it, doesn't, it can be either one. Um, it was uh, prompted by uh, one of the comments by uh, a panelist, actually the moderator at a Heterodox Academy um, YouTube uh, celebrating its fifth anniversary. It comes from uh, Anna Khalidi, who was, uh, was the, uh, the moderator. And uh, she mentioned in there that, uh, that what Heterodox Academy uh, does is it promotes slow, gradual, not always visible transformation in uh, academic discourse in ways that will recover uh, what, what most academics I know regard as the ideals of it reason, dispassion, uh, constructive disagreement, and so forth. And the thing that struck me about four reasons why Heterodox Academy failed 
Heterox Academy was founded as a means of promoting this. And one gets the uh, impression that uh, they don't really understand what they're up against, you know. And so the basic question is, is universities are obviously in turmoil right now. Uh, and the question is, are we in a reasoned discussion among peers who are seeking to persuade uh, each other through reasoned discourse? Or uh, are we in a knife fight against our mortal enemies? And what's the appropriate tactic to restore what we think is, uh, is uh, the norm for uh, academic discourse? And so with that, uh, welcome, Nathan. We're glad you're here. Uh, take it away. Yes, thank you. And speaking of the fifth anniversary of Heterodox Academy, my original plan was to have this article published right after to assess where Heterodox Academy was after five years. But it took me, now it's seven years after Heterodox Academy was published. How did that happen? Uh, no one wanted to publish my article. Uh, all of the conservative and heterodox um, uh, magazines, uh, they all said, well, I, most of them said, we'd like to publish it if you take out the criticism of the people you're not allowed to criticize. If you take out the, um, you know, the discussion of the forbidden topics, then we'd love to publish it. Of course, that was uh, unacceptable. Um, and uh, but finally, because of uh, the National Association of Scholars, uh, it was able to find a, uh, the perfect home for uh, the article. I should have submitted it there from the, the beginning. Um, but yes, and this has been a talking point among uh, the heterodox academy uh, types for a long time, which is that they're working for slow, sustained change. Um, well, and the, I guess they're, it's, really, it's impossible to refute their claim that they've helped bring about slow change that can't really be identified, but um, clearly we're losing the fight. <laughs> we're losing very badly. Um, it's just people getting outright fired if they cross the line, uh, but the purge is, you know, in uh, you know, graduate school admissions, uh, people with dissident views just getting, you know, pushed out of academia. Not become not getting PhDs, not and if they manage to get a PhD, very difficult to get a job, uh, uh, and you know the heterodoxers are, you know, still quoting John Stuart Mill, he who knows only his own side of the argument knows you know little of that or whatever it is. They keep, and meanwhile, I have to write a loyalty oath to wokeism when I apply for you know half the jobs I apply for in America. Okay, that's uh, Cambridge University. Academic uh, Nathan Kofnis speaking there. Let's get a little bit more from Tucker Carlson. Think about that. People are still going to demand justice. The desire for justice is an inherent human desire. We are born with it. But if there's no neutral place to do it, some people will decide they're going to have to do it themselves. Ooh. Now, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but we can say for certain it's going to be really ugly. So they hate Donald Trump. Fine. But they don't get to destroy America's justice system because they do. We would never recover from that. Robert Costello was legal advisor to former Trump attorney Michael Cohen, who made the payment to Stormy Daniels. He joins us tonight. Mr. Costello, thank you so much for coming on. So we, as noted, we, you know, we can't know whether there'll be an indictment or, or what's in it. But from the leaks that you Robert have Costello read was legal advisor, how do you to, assess this case? Uh, weak, to say the least. Um, I just spent two hours or so testifying before the grand jury in downtown Manhattan. And uh, I got my point across, although it was clear to me that the Manhattan DA's office did not want to get to the truth. I need to explain that a little bit. I called them up uh, after I saw Michael Cohn on TV stating things that he said he was going to tell the grand jury and had told the grand jury that were contrary to what he told us when we first represented him in April of 2018. So I'm sitting at home watching these lies, and I said, I've got to do something about it. I don't represent Donald Trump, 
but I do stand for justice, and I think I have a legal obligation to inform both sides. So that's what I did. I had a ton of documents that I had prepared back in 2019 for the Department of Justice. The U.S. Attorney's Office called me up and said, Mr. Costello, we would like to talk to you about your representation of Michael Cohn. I laughed and said, can I presume you have a waiver of, this, of the attorney-client privilege? And they said, you presume correctly. I said, fine, send it over. I'll be delighted to talk to you. Uh, that waiver is very clear. And once we had that, I prepared 330 emails, uh, a bunch of text messages. I prepared a contemporaneous report of our first meeting with Michael Cohn at the Regency Hotel in Manhattan, as well as a contemporaneous notes of the interview I had for two hours with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, as well as contemporaneous notes of an interview by the House Committee on Intelligence, who sent three investigators to my office, one of whom is now uh, Dan Goldman, a congressman here in New York. So I had all of this material ready. I sent it to Donald Trump's lawyer, and I sent it to the Manhattan DA's office. And I contacted the Manhattan DA's office, and I asked, could we meet with Alvin Bragg? Because I wanted to present this to Alvin Bragg as I had presented it to the Southern District. I wanted him to look me in the eye and assess my credibility. Did I have more credibility than uh, Michael Cohn? Because Michael Cohn, in my uh, opinion, was lying about just about everything. I specifically told them that there were two main points that I wanted to make clear. That Cohn had told us that when we first met him, that he was suicidal. Why is that important? Because when you're suicidal, thinking that that's the only way out of your legal mess, and you're presented with the following options, that you can cooperate against Donald Trump and provide information that would get you a get-out-of-jail-free card, and you respond to us, I do not have any information on Donald Trump. And he said it many times during that two-hour meeting. I swear to God, Bob, I don't have anything on Donald Trump. And I had my law partner who knew Michael Cohn for 10 years on Columbia Grammar and Prep School here in Manhattan because Cohn was on the board of directors. Yeah. Uh, and when I heard him say that he was suicidal the weekend before standing on the roof of the Regency Hotel, I didn't know whether he was a drama queen or telling the truth. So I looked at my partner and he shook his head and nodded, I think he's telling the truth. And later on, we got that corroborated by the Reverend Jerry Falwell and his wife who had dinner with Michael Cohn who told him the same thing. Why is that important? Because when you're willing to give up your life in order to avoid these legal troubles, when they're insurmountable to you, and you're offered a way out, you say, all you have to do is cooperate on Donald Trump. Do you have anything on Donald Trump? And he says, no, repeatedly, I swear to God, Bob, I don't have anything. Then you know that you've got a guy who probably doesn't have anything. It's certainly easier to give up information on Donald Trump. Okay, we'll keep an eye on this story. Let's get more here from Nathan Kaufness about why Heterodox Academy has failed. And the other half, I mean, I still have to show that I'm on board with the woke thing, uh, even if they don't have a, a formal loyalty oath, um, the diversity, so-called diversity statement. So obviously they don't care about John Stuart Mill uh, or any of that. They're just, they are, uh, they've taken over, they have the power and they're going to purge everyone that they don't like. And uh, yeah, the attitude of Heterodox Academy and their their plan is to get nowhere. It's it's it has gotten us nowhere, and it will uh, continue to have uh, the same effect. 
one of the things that has been striking to me seeing uh, how especially scientists uh, encounter this uh, encounter this uh, phenomenon is it's almost like they woke up one day and they saw that the world had changed around them and it's a bit like uh, watching a deer in the headlights you know and i'm thinking of uh, the physicist lawrence krauss uh, uh, nicholas christakis at uh, yale who faced his own uh, challenge there for for uh, halloween costumes of of all things and and they're astonished at what's uh, what's what's what, what's happening around them and and you know the, this is why i ask you know are, are, are we in a reasoned discussion or are we in a knife fight and uh, um, what's your what's your perspective on that where do we sit well i mean not only are we in a knife fight and we have no knives but <laughs> you know the people who are supposedly representing our our interests like heterodox academy they basically are on okay so i think this talking about we're in a knife fight is is vastly exaggerated right you can you can live live your life and uh, you can you know, say heterodox opinions if you have certain types of jobs, right? The more prestigious your job, right, the more difficult it is to give heterodox opinions. But, I mean, we have it so good in the West compared to most people throughout history and people in, in China and Korea and much of Africa today. So I think knife fight is, is a vast exaggeration. And the the attitude that comes with we're in a knife fight, all right, that, that predisposes you to uh, in-group versus out-group thinking, to you know, not giving the, the other side the benefit of the doubt or not, not steel-manning their, their arguments, I don't think it's adaptive. So I think it's adaptive to go around with like a 2 out of 10 in anger and resentment against your enemies. But it's not adaptive to go around thinking we're in a knife fight, right? That's not a, a winning formula for life, right? Save the attitude of you're in a knife fight for when you're actually in a knife fight. I don't think anyone who has actually been in a knife fight would describe these academic battles as a knife fight, right? You'd have to have a very sheltered life where you've probably never even been punched hard in the face, right? You've never been in a knife fight. You've never been in a gun battle to describe what's going on in America's academy as a knife fight, right? You have a soft totalitarianism of the left that dominates almost all our major institutions, but that is very far from a knife fight. On the side of, of the wokesters, uh, and this is you know the problem with all these organizations, except for National Association of Scholars, <laughs> uh, is that you know they all become woke in the end. So everybody invests you know so much hope and resources into these leaders and organizations, and they maybe in the beginning they're talking the right talk, but then they sell out you know as soon as they get a certain amount of mainstream acceptance. Um, and then they just bask in their celebrity that they acquired by being associated with the more edgy people, but now they just go mainstream and then outright woke, which is what. Okay, some uh, comments in the chat. 40, have you been punched? Yes, I've been punched. And I've had uh, death threats. Uh, I've uh, been, been smacked around pretty good. Okay, it uh, could become a hard totalitarianism. Highly, highly, highly unlikely, right? That the United States could become like the Soviet Union or Mao Mao's China, highly unlikely. Uh, someone says, don't past presidents have immunity from prosecution? No, th that's never been true. What is true is that sitting presidents cannot be sued and taken into court while they are, while they are in office, generally speaking. So there will be some exceptions to that. So the Paula Jones case pushed forward while, while Bill Clinton was in office. But generally speaking, 
sitting politicians, particularly sitting presidents, have have some relief from being forced to fight out uh, personal litigation against them. It could become hardened little by little. Every There's just no plausible reason to think that the United States is going to become anything like the Soviet Union or, or Mao's China, right? We have the left controlling our major institutions, but people are not being sent to concentration camps, to gas chambers, to anything like the equivalent of Siberia. It's just that the more prestigious the job that you hold or want to hold, right, the more difficult it is, the more challenging it is to say controversial opinions. But if you're willing to do non-prestigious work, right, you can give your heterodox opinions all day long. And if you work as a, a plumber or as some kind of personal assistant or you have some non-prestigious way of earning a living, then you know you're you're very going to be very difficult to be canceled. What happened with uh, you know Jonathan Haidt? Mm -hmm. One of the uh, most important points that I make in the in the article is why why is everything going woke? Uh, and every time you start an organization to to you know push back against the woke censorship, then it becomes woke too. Is because basically all mainstream liberals and conservatives accept the empirical premises that motivate wokeism. What is what is wokeism? Uh, maybe people saw there was a viral video. I'm an Atiba of Today News Africa. So today Atiba just got frustrated and called out the White House press secretary for ignoring his actual questions for months. Watch what happened next. What you are doing, you are making a monthly of the press briefing room. It's been seven months. You've not called on me. Call no, the messages. I'm saying that does not right. Does not right. Welcome, guys. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the press briefing room. This is not China. This is not Russia. This is the United States. This is the White House. No, it's been seven months. I sent you the message. You're going to rush the Russia. You're too, pal. It is been seven months. If you have grievances, you should bring them to her later. I have right 10, 15 minutes is unacceptable. It's it, it is unacceptable. So we're gonna. So we're either going to continue the briefing, or we can just end the briefing right here. It, outrageous doesn't even describe what we just played for you. So here you have the White House press secretary, whose job it is to answer questions from journalists on behalf of the entire American population, hijacking the event to promote a TV show. And then screaming at a guy who wants his questions answered. And then the other shills in the room don't take the side of their fellow journalist, but take the side of the lady at the front to whom they are actually beholden and try and shut down Simon Atiba. Who did that? Glissa partial list. That would include Jeff Mason of Reuters, who should be ashamed. Brian Karam of CNN. Associated Press correspondent Zeke Miller even apologized to the press secretary later in the press conference. They, again, should be ashamed of themselves. And previous generations of reporters would have turned on them. Really, you're taking her side? She's a liar? Your job is not to suck up to power 
It's to serve your viewers and readers by getting to the truth. But instead, they piled on Simon Atiba. Really the most revealing moment maybe ever in the White House press room. We are honored now to be joined by Simon Atiba himself. Okay. <laughs> I don't really care that uh, Simon Atiba doesn't get to ask questions. What's going on with heterodox academy? Video of uh, Bethany Mandel. Somebody asked her, um, "What is?" she's a kind of conservative uh, activist. Somebody said, what is wokeism? And she just stammered for you know, 30, 45 seconds, and she couldn't say anything. Um, well, wokeism is what you get when you take the equality thesis seriously. I think everyone's exactly the same. Um, you know, African-Americans and Korean-Americans are born on average exactly the same, and there are some social forces uh, you know, that are responsible because we know everybody has the same genes, uh, the same innate potential. So well, what could that be? What are these? What does that mean to you? Could, could, would you mind? Half Americans consider themselves very liberal and probably fewer of them consider themselves to be woke. And so, you know, when, when well, we talk about traditional you? Could, could, would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple of times that I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that um, I, this is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to re -to totally reimagine and re re redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Um, sorry, I, it's, it's hard to explain in a 15 second soundbite. Yeah, look, your time. And Americans consider these sociological forces that cause the you know massively different outcomes and the only the only hypothesis that makes sense if you rule out genes is white racism either current white racism or the legacy of, of white racism and you know conservatives have some uh, cultural some some cultural explanations which don't hold up under scrutiny at all uh, they're very silly so you know very few people you know smart people are really attracted to those those ideas that you know it's uh, the disparities are the result of uh, bad uh, democratic policies or um you know whatever it is the bigotry of low expectations so most people if you can't implicate genes they gravitate toward the white racism theory and then if you really believe so if you remember bethany mandel from 2015 2016 she was glorifying in how the alt-right was being really mean to her she was a big opponent of donald trump so basic facts of life all right, elude her, such as that different people have different gifts. Because she's unwilling to face up to the, these basic facts of life, then she just looks stupid. So she was, was just glorifying in urinating all over the alt-right and then getting uh, validation that they would return fire, right? So you direct fire against a group, you mock and belittle and demean a group, as she did with the alt-right and the alt-light, uh, then, yeah, you can expect some blowback. And one of the essences of, of her critique was that she just couldn't admit that uh, different groups have, have different gifts. And so that leads to the sort of incoherence you just saw on display. believe that white racism is having these you know, horrible consequences, then you have to search, where's the white racism? Well, discrimination against the you know, traditionally persecuted minorities has been illegal for generations now. Uh, and in fact, discrimination is the opposite. They're discriminated in favor of uh, those groups. So, okay, that's not where the racism is. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a microaggression. 
um, somebody, a, a, an implicit association, a white man, uh, you know, in a point one, you know, seconds, he makes an association, the wrong association. And that explains, you know, from these enormous disparities. Um, what else can you, what else can you conclude? And uh, then you have to go around on a hunt for, to root out the racism. And that's wokeism. That is wokeism is, uh, and if you believe that white racism, which is this mysterious force, we can't exactly explain how it has all these terrible effects. Uh, but if you believe that it exists, uh, then you get witch hunts and you get cancel culture searching for. Okay. One thing that Tucker Carlson does really, really well is he gathers killer clips from, from the, the mainstream media. So I, I just got to get back to Tucker because he does this so well. The president of China, President Xi, met with Vladimir Putin in Moscow today. He went there in part to broker a ceasefire in the conflict. You can be opposed to Russia and China getting together, but if you care about Ukraine, you probably want this war to end. But this administration wants to keep it going. Here's spokesflack John Kirby explaining. If they call for a ceasefire, you believe Ukraine should and will reject that? Yes, we do, and we would uh, reject it as well. We think that that's an unacceptable outcome right now. Uh, obviously, we want the fighting to stop. We want the war to be over. And as I said, it could end today if Mr. Putin would do the right thing. But to call for a ceasefire right now basically ratifies what they've been able to grab inside Ukraine and gives them time and space uh, to prepare for future operations, and that's just not going to be acceptable. Right. So this is the second time the Biden administration has stopped any attempt to end the war, negotiated and not immediate frozen in place, but trying to end it. It's the second time, because the point, of course, is regime change in Russia. Now, Trump has taken a lot of flack recently, but on foreign policy, he is a lot clearer thinking than Joe Biden or his little spokesperson you just saw. Here is Trump's assessment of what's going on in Ukraine. We're quoting, the greatest threat to Western civilization today is not Russia. It's probably more than anything else ourselves and some of the horrible USA-hating people who represent us. Glenn Greenwald is host of System Update on Rumble. He joins us tonight to assess this. Glenn, thanks for coming on. For the second time that we know of, the Biden administration has... Okay, yeah, good points made by, by Tucker. The Biden administration had no interest in preventing this war, reducing the odds of this war. They have no interest in wrapping up this war. They have no interest in reaching a peace deal in Ukraine, which is just extraordinary, right? The Biden administration is pleased with the, the war in Ukraine, right? They are taking a calculated gamble that uh, Russia will bleed out and therefore there'll be one less major superpower competitor to the United States. But, I mean, this is incredibly risky option. I mean, you're risking World War III. We've increased by 10, 20 times the odds of a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union because of our subsidizing of Ukraine in this conflict. And it's just... Stunning to me that the Biden administration has no interest in any kind of negotiated peace deal and they had no interest in forestalling this war and that they are all on board with this war. It's it's just, yeah, I find that stunning. All right, back to Nathan Kofnis. The, uh, the invisible racism. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this is part of the consequence of of uh, the taboo, the intellectual taboo that you mentioned in your paper, which is that we're not allowed, allowed to talk about 
human genetics. And, uh, you know, the, the dilemma there, of course, as you pointed out, is, all right, you can identify different races on the planet Earth. They are groups that have evolved in different areas. You can identify them uh, partly by, by visible or attributes or performance attributes. And you can even identify differences in the genetic composition, you know, given the proviso that, you know, the vast majority of the genes shared by human people are, are in fact, uh, identical. But it's a, it's, it's a natural tenet of evolutionary biology that as you have these races evolving, you will have genetic differences. And, and uh, uh, people are very unwilling to talk about that, even when it comes to uh, genetic differences of, of cognitive ability. And, uh, and so you have this odd paradox where, uh, all right, well, in every other category that you care to measure, you can actually identify human races as, as something real. Um, but uh, there's one area where we can't go, and that is uh, the, the heritability of IQ but, uh, or any other measure of cognitive ability that you uh, wish to use. But the, the, the deeper aspect is that you know, this, 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 is, this is tied into a fundamental um, discontinuity between our social and political aspirations, which is that uh, everyone should be equal before the law and there should be no privileged classes. Uh, uh, we should uh, allow people to advance on the basis of merit. And, um, and somehow, you know, we can't talk about the other contributing factor there, which is that there is such thing as heritability, and, and that's going to influence people's abilities. That doesn't mean that uh, these different abilities can't advance equally, uh, but uh, it's unrealistic to bring in an equity agenda, some kind of uh, target uh, uh, demographic uh, representation in the sciences and, and, and whatnot. And, and this, this, uh, is, uh, this question is tied into something that, uh, that uh, Jonathan Heights uh, uh, met, uh, mentioned, for example, in, in one of the uh, things that you cited in your paper, is that, is that he's become kind of, uh, I think, the... Uh, the, the phrase was his heart is now open to the woke perspective and and uh, uh, he spoke about uh, we have to pay attention to race uh, but of course in the climate you can't pay attention to race from all perspectives you can only pay attention to it from one perspective and of course that's a capitulation to the to the woke mob which i think was one of the principal uh, uh, criticisms that you had of heterodox academy that namely that it's 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 sort of an embodiment of conquest's law, second law of politics i think that is uh, you know all things all organizations that are not explicitly conservative will eventually become liberal or in this case woke well, yeah, well, I, I mean, the trend has been toward leftism, wokeism, and I think that has, uh, you know, partly be, been driven by the fact that if you accept blank latest empirical assumptions, you that's where you end up. And intellectuals on both the left and the right have largely accepted these ideas, um, at least they don't disagree publicly. And it just if you take those ideas seriously, that's why we've been going that direction. We we accepted the premises of wokeism even. You know, in the 50s, the 60s, this is what intellectuals believed. It was inevitable that if we carried on. Now, the thing is, um, for them, it was probably, um, you know, kind of a white lie in the beginning. Like, yeah, maybe there are differences, but we're the same. And this is what Richard Nixon is on tape saying this, <laughs> but, uh, that, yeah, there are differences, but it's it's too terrible and it'll create conflict. So we should just not, not mention this. We need to keep it a secret. Um, but you keep teaching children for generations and generations. And then, you know, I quote in the, in the article, I quote Nietzsche, in the son, that becomes conviction, which in the father was still a lie. <laughs> so, you know, Zoomers, finally, you, 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 you succeeded in raising a generation that seriously believes this stuff. And they look at the world and there's no explanation for these different patterns of, of behavior and outcome, uh, except, you know, white racism. So, uh, you know, an organization like Heterodox Academy, then all these um, and this is why I had so much trouble publishing the article for one of the one of the reasons is editors didn't want me to have a frank speak frankly about uh, race and race differences. Uh, and we're never going to to win the fight against wokeism. Now, if we can't if we can't uh, address that point, because that is the basis of wokeism and heterodox academy also, um, you know, 
you know, right when Heterodox Academy was founded, Haidt had, you know, indicated that he was open to all, all these things and that he was going to uh, support heterodoxy about race. But, you know, they never did. At the first Heterodox Academy conference, it was just, um, you know, a bunch of uh, leftists, uh, celebrities, uh, you know, bashing Republicans, just like at a regular academic conference. There's nothing. And, um, you know, the second Heterodox Academy conference was the same thing. And, you know, the only time they talked about race was to say that, yeah, we shouldn't talk. We shouldn't be allowed to talk about race, and that's what they said at the Heterodox Academy conferences. Um, they had panelists saying it's a good thing that Amy Wax isn't allowed to teach required classes because she said something that you're not supposed to say about race, and it's a good thing that you know you shouldn't invite somebody to give a talk at the, the university if they said something about race differences. And you know, Jason Stanley and uh, you know John McWhorter are nodding their heads. Uh, so, you know, organizations like this and and the heterodox conservative establishment not willing to take on the the idea that causes wokeism. So what's the point? You know, that's not going to work. It will never work. And yeah, they can say yeah, but you know, Thomas Sowell says uh, whatever. But no one takes that seriously because it's obvious, there are many obvious problems with with those ideas. And uh, yeah, and if if we're not willing to take on uh, the race issue, then just just forget it. There's no point in uh, fighting wokeism or trying to take back academia. Yeah, yeah. Um, I see that there are a number of questions uh, coming in. Um, after, at about minute 45 or so, we'll start to, to go to that. But uh, I would like to encourage everyone to put your questions into the Q&A box. Uh, we have a number in the chat box, and we will certainly get to that. But uh, for various reasons, we like uh, we like to have the reluctance to deal with the with with, with the whole issue is, is of, of of heritability of different kinds of behaviors and and cognitive ability and so forth. This this goes way back, you know. I uh, uh, William Hamilton is a famous figure in evolutionary biology, and uh, back in the 1950s when he was a student, uh, he wanted to look at the genetics of behavior, and he he found incredible resistance among uh, faculty mentors, potential faculty mentors, because uh, you know we were just coming out of a, a rather bloody experiment with the genetic determinism of behavior, and uh, no one wanted to touch it uh, mainly, and and so. This is a long-standing phenomenon, and it's uh, it's surprising to me that uh, that uh, academics are still so reluctant to engage it. You know, it's still it's still a tab taboo. Now, now one can excuse biologists back then uh, for being reluctant to deal with it because, after all, we had just come through World War II, and it was a rather uh, unpleasant, uh, to say the least, uh, understatement of the century uh, experience. Uh, but um, but now it seems that there's it's being sustained by by uh, by political power rather than any kind of reluctance to to deal with uh, deal with uh, the aftermath of a, of, of a horrible uh, period of our lives. And uh, in addition to finding systemic racism and all these other kinds of imaginary things. One of the things you find is is that uh, this is sustained by a small group of people engaged in very uh, very deep historical revisionism of the past. Uh, one of the common things you see is that uh, is that woke scientists, for example, they say, "Oh, well, you know, science has done irreparable or devastating or any kind of uh, other alarmist uh, adjective uh, adjectives you might want to use uh, harm to indigenous communities, uh, communities of color, uh, you know, colonized uh, uh, people, and uh, so forth." And and most of these are very very selective in their history and their understanding. They're very propagandistic. Uh, just to give you an example. I've come across recently, uh, uh, the American Ornithological Union wants to uh, wants to cancel John James Audubon, you know, because he he has said uh, uh, you know nasty things, well, supposedly said nasty things about black people and slavery and all these other kind of things. And there's there's this uh, incredibly ginned up uh, um, controversy over this. And of course, you saw the same thing with University College London in the recent attempt to cancel Thomas Huxley, you know. Uh, and so um, there seems to be um, a common theme here: uh, race is an issue, but we have different kinds of of, uh, of imperatives that are elevating race to a place where it actually has no place well also i mean the the version we're taught a certain version of in many ways false history uh in order to justify you know our these uh, these reactions um i mean it's not like the idea that the nazis were 
you know, had a biologically informed view and they, uh, you know, uh, they believed in IQ determinism or, or whatever. I mean, uh, for all the people who fought the Nazis took it for granted that races are different. I, that wasn't the, what distinguished Nazis from non-Nazis. Um, the Nazis were just, you know, pseudoscientists. They just, made, they, they didn't believe in evolution. Uh, they believed in cosmic ice theory. Um, and uh, it was not, Darwin, they, all of the, uh, um, uh, Bob Richards, by the way, has an excellent uh, chapter on this. Uh, was Hitler a Darwinian? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, and none of the intellectuals who inspired Hitler or the other Nazi uh, scholars were, they all rejected Darwin. It, it was just, uh, you know, a kind of tribalism that they, I mean, they used some uh, pseudoscientific uh, ideas to, when, to justify their, uh, their tribalist philosophy. And when the science didn't support it, they just made it up. Uh, they ignored the science. Um, and if you wanted, and we, we could, of course, Hitler should be highlighted as one of the great evildoers, but why not Stalin also? You know, uh, I think I, I would uh, imagine, you know, virtually everyone knows Hitler is bad, but, you know, the average person, do they even know about Stalin, what, what he did? What, um, you know, if we heard all about Hitler and Stalin and what Stalin did based on his idea that the, we're blank slates, then, uh, you know, or, and if, if uh, you know, the establishment were interested in, you know, showing why blank slatism is dangerous, then they could teach that version of history, which maybe de-emphasizes Hitler and shines the spotlight on Stalin and all the bad things he did. So uh, the appeal of blank slatism, though, and it goes back a long, long time. Uh, John Locke, maybe the first person to, you know, express this idea was, I think, 1690, that the mind is a uh, blank paper can write whatever we want on it mm -hmm. and uh you know this was repeated by you know many leading uh, intellectuals and uh it's just a a very appealing idea you can change people to make them however you want uh that sounds nice um so yeah I and mean, if if an idea kind of sounds nice and makes people feel good and optimistic and encouraged uh, and inspired then a certain amount of people will be attracted will you know be attracted to that idea um and then after you know, the disciplines, uh, the social scientific disciplines were established uh, in the mid 20th century, there was, uh, you know, tremendous uh, professional incentive to deny the, uh, the, effect, the influence of biology, because they wanted to say, we're the sociologists, you know, we don't need, we don't need biologists to, to uh, inform the study of culture, that's all us. And the anthropologists were, you know, saying something similar. Mm -hmm. So in order to establish the, their independence, they, you know, that was one of the reasons they, they wanted to reject biology. And then, of course, it became, uh, there was also the ideological uh, motivation but really uh, if we should teach a more accurate version of history which is that uh, nazi pseudoscience that uh, or in the service of a uh, you know a, a vicious ideology was a bad thing and also blank slatism can lead to bad results uh, and uh, but if we just face the facts and learn what the truth is and then try to construct policy that is informed by the truth then that's probably our best chance of having uh, some good outcome yeah, you know, and, and uh, the the comparison between Nazism and Stalinism is an interesting one, you know, because because uh, uh, the reason one has survived uh, unscathed and uh, uh, the other one is as a as an object of of uh, quite justifiable um, uh, uh, hatred, really. Um, you know, they they really reflect a, an ongoing debate in evolutionary biology. You know, you can think of Nazism as the as the uh, as as the prevalence of determinism over over nature, whereas with Lysenkoism, for example, it was just the opposite. You know, they they, they were opposed to Mendelian genetics. Uh, they emphasized the adaptive nature of of uh, of, of, of living things, and the, the the whole blank slate idea comes directly from that. And uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what that says about uh, the development of these ideals in our uh, academy. But you know, I I come back to someone like Stephen Pinker, who makes the 
Okay, I'm curious what uh, Alan Dershowitz might have to say here. Cannot be prosecuted. What they're trying to do is to take a federal crime where the FEC has already said there is no crime, bootstrap it, and somehow get jurisdiction in New York State of a federal crime and as a state prosecutor, prosecute this. Is there anything illegal about what they're alleging? I don't think so. Even the false records case is very weak. There are thousands of non-disclosure agreements every year. Do you think anyone has ever told the truth about the payment? Can you imagine the record saying, we paid $130,000 to a porn star to buy her silence about an adulterous affair with our CEO? Uh, what he said it was legal. And, you know, it was a settlement of a case. So they don't even have the misdemeanor that's beyond right. the statute of limitations. Right. And then to turn it into a felony, you have to then assume that the only reason he did that, that record, was because he didn't want to be prosecuted for an illegal campaign contribution. That was the furthest thing from Trump's mind. Obviously, the reason he didn't want that to be made public is it would be embarrassing to his family, to his friends. But, you know, I'm reminded when I was a young civil rights worker and I trained to go down south in the 1960s, our trainers taught us one thing. Don't spit on the floor. Don't put out your cigarettes because they're targeting you. They're looking for you as civil rights workers. They will indict you for a felony if you put out a cigarette on the floor. And we all learned that lesson because we knew we were being targeted. And now D.A. Bragg is following the absolute lead of the segregation of South prosecutors and police by targeting somebody who is unpopular, all just right. like the civil rights workers all were. Right. It's a terrible, terrible precedent to follow, and it will establish a terrible precedent that can again be used as exactly. it was used against civil exactly. rights Exactly. All right, Greg Jared, what we're, they're talking about is an unreported, alleged unreported campaign contribution that was, that was filed or documented as a legal expense. Now, Hillary Clinton, the FEC... Okay, I don't think I care that much what uh, Greg Jarrett has to say. Please correct me in the chat if I should be caring what Greg Jarrett has to say. Quite reasonable argument that, well, you know, it's not all one or the other. It's somewhere in between. But for some reason, that middle ground seems to be, uh, seems to be being depopulated by the, uh, by the uh, actual, actually currently victorious ideology on campus, which is wokeism. Uh, yes, and um, of course, uh, even if you reject blank slateism with respect to individual differences, um, you know, it can also be, uh, you know, extremely damaging um, to accept it with uh, respect to race differences. I mean, really, what you, you, I think you can make a much stronger case that Nazism was motivated, at least by a certain kind of blank slateism, <laughs> is about, well, why are the Jews, you know, so successful? Mm. Um, could it be that, well, it's just an IQ of 112 compared to 100 <laughs> is largely explains why, you know, the Jews have more money and uh, and uh, have position, prominent positions. Well, um, no, they didn't accept that. In fact, the Nazis completely rejected IQ testing as a tool of Jewry. Hmm. Um, so the other explanation, well, if it's not natural differences, it must be that they're cheating. Um, they're doing something wrong. Th that's why they're doing better, which is exactly what is happening with wokeism. And they say everyone's the same, but there are these you know, very different outcomes. So the only explanation that people are going, that's going to make sense to people is that the people who are doing better, they... They cheated. They mm. they kept down everyone else. So this blank slatist assumption actually is not conducive to racial harmony. Um, I mean, in some areas we implicitly accept like it's not a problem that 
100% of all the great sprinters are, you know, West African. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just kind of, we don't really talk about it openly, but yeah, you know, yeah. we just, we, we accept that that's not a disparity that yeah. needs to be corrected. Um, and, uh, but yeah, people, it's, uh, uh, we can't, we can't say that yeah. for, uh, the other differences. Yeah. So among the, uh, among the, the, the four reasons why, um, why, uh, you say that heterodox Academy has failed is that, uh, is that they have failed actually to, uh, even defend heterodoxy and you, and you make the, uh, this is a case brought by rabid Trump haters. This is not about justice. It's not about a crime. We already know that. There's no basis in it for the law. And yet you've got this guy, Mark Pomerantz, who wrote a book that was unethical. It was about a case that he was in the middle of the investigation yeah. of. And you've got Alvin Bragg, a Trump hater. Letitia James, the attorney general in New York, a Trump hater. This is what they do in third world countries. Well, it's worse than that. Uh you know, she ran for office, Letitia James, on the campaign pledge to get Trump. That's how I named my book, Get Trump. I didn't make up that. I got it from her campaign. She went out on the streets and she said, I promise you, if you elect me, I will get Trump. And if you can do it to Trump, you can do it next month to your Uncle Charlie or your nephew. This is so dangerous. This is so much in violation. In 60 years, of teaching and practicing criminal law, I have never seen a greater abuse of prosecutorial discretion. And I've seen plenty of abuses. This is the worst. Even in the Al Capone case, they went after him for tax, but he was guilty of that. They didn't make that up. Here, they had to make up a misdemeanor, make up a felony, relate the felony to the misdemeanor, violate the statute of limitations, all to stop him from running for president. Well, I have some bad news for these yeah, guys. It, he can still run for president, even if he is improperly convicted, which could happen in New York. Right. And, you know, Greg Jarrett, the last last thought. Okay, I think we'll skip uh, Greg Jarrett here. You, you make your case uh, based on not only the prevalence of, of, uh, of left to center to left uh, liberals, the over-representation of people with that persuasion on panels and uh, and and so forth. But but uh, you've made the claim that uh, uh, actually um, Heterodox Academy is not really that open to heterodoxy. And you cite uh, the, um, the, the the case of a, uh, of, of a, uh, of a, I'm just looking for his Helmut name. Helmut Nyborg. Helmut, and I was looking for the first name, Helmut Nyborg. Uh, why he was, uh, he applied to be a part of Heterodox Academy and he was rejected. Four um, times. Four times, yeah. So can you fill us in a, a little bit on, on, the, on what happened there? So Helmut Nyborg is a Danish um, psychologist who's done some work on uh, race and uh, sex differences uh, and, um, well, applied to join Heterodox Academy because uh, he does heterodox work and he's interested in promoting heterodoxy, so why not? And he was rejected. And it seems, although Heterodox Academy refuses to confirm this for some reason, but uh, it seems that the reason is because he gave a talk at American Renaissance. uh, And Heterodox Academy said uh, American Renaissance is a hate group so you've been associated with the hate group, so you can't join Heterodox Academy. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with that. Uh, first of all, American Renaissance is not a hate group. Uh, they, uh, so they're called a hate group because they um, give a platform for frank discussion about race differences um, and because they are, they're basically a white nationalist organization. So they, uh, they are... They promote what they call white interests. So they are concerned about affirmative action. And uh, um, many of the people associated with it, um, uh, you know, 
would prefer to have uh, uh, to live. Although they, um, the only policies that they have um, that the, the leader of, of American Renaissance has recommended are a moratorium on immigration from all countries, not based on uh, race, and freedom of association. So they're against laws that demand uh, you know in, in integration, um, and they would generally prefer to live in majority white areas. Now, if you say that that they're a hate group because of that. But then what about all the African-American studies departments? They're free to join Heterodox Academy. And they say stuff like that, you know, about blacks and. Well, speaking as someone who converted to Orthodox Judaism, Orthodox Jews overwhelmingly want to live very close to Orthodox synagogues in neighborhoods that are dominantly Orthodox Jewish. So uh, Orthodox Jews, you know, rarely get to live in uh, neighborhoods that are 60, 70, 80 percent Orthodox Jewish but they certainly want to live in highly concentrated forms of uh, their own kind. Most people want to live with their own kind. Most people want to work with their own kind. Most people want to pray with their own kind. Most people want to socialize with their own kind. Most people want to volunteer with their own kind. Most people want to stick with their own kind. And until they change human nature, people are going to prefer their in-group, and they're going to have fears, concerns, uh, worries, and negative feelings about out-groups. Right, that's the nature of the human animal. Uh, other groups all the time, and Heterodox Academy was never bothered by that, but they're bothered when American Renaissance does it. So that was obviously a totally unacceptable excuse for rejecting him. Yeah, I know Heiberg was was a, was a member of a, sort of a Danish equivalent of of, uh, of American Renaissance, and and so um, I'm. I don't know the discussions that went on behind the scenes. I don't know if you have any insight into that, but uh, it's clear that Nyborg uh, came into his application with some genuinely heterodox views. You know, we can uh, discuss whether they're correct or or, or not. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, do in your researches have you have you delved into the reasons, the real reasons why Heterodox Academy rejected uh, his application? Because uh, you know, frankly, Heterodox Academy's own statements on this have been rather uh, rather um, uh, nebulous, if you will, uh, cagey. Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah. they didn't want. So they said they wouldn't that the they couldn't comment on it because of privacy reasons, mm -hmm. which I don't know that didn't make much sense to me. But I suspect that they didn't want to comment that the excuse was the the talk at American Renaissance because of how obviously indefensible that would be. Um, but then I can't share you know sort of some all the correspondence that I've uh, mm -hmm. received about this. But I will say that I did see some suggestion that there was a hostility toward Nyborg based on based on his work. But uh, you know this is a kind of um, we we await a statement mm -hmm. from Heterodox Academy if they are willing to set the record straight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a crucial issue, you know, for for, for people on the right actually, and uh, people who actually who hold actually heterodox uh, views. You know, is Heterodox Academy a, a a place where that kind of heterodoxy can be engaged in safely and constructively? And it seems like uh, you know they do need to come uh, come forth on this to actually clarify why, for example, certain kinds of heterodoxy are unacceptable and why some forms of heterodoxy are self-defined as okay. And it's one of the things that undermines the mission, I think. Well, well Tomasi. I think he implied that they don't have this policy anymore and now anyone can join, but that's, I mean, that's nice. But the thing is, this wasn't, the uh, treatment of Nyborg was part of a pattern. Mm -hmm. That was the, the real problem, uh, is that they've never given a platform for anybody to talk about race. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they've had panelists, uh, you know, John McWhorter said people should not, um, should not talk about the, the genetic basis of race differences. He said that at the Heterodox Academy conference when he was a panelist. And then the next year, he won the Free Inquiry Leader Award from Heterodox Academy. So nobody disagreed with him when he said that. Everyone said, yeah, that's right. And then Heterodox Academy gave him an award for Free Inquiry. So obviously, Heterodox Academy thinks that that's an example of leadership in Free Inquiry. Um, so uh, 
and it, Tomasi, I don't know. Uh, by the way, uh, John Tomasi has been invited to the chat. I don't know if he's here. Uh, I hope I hope he he came and he can uh, he can comment. But in his uh, his response to my article, Tomasi didn't didn't deny any of this. He didn't say yeah. Uh, he didn't deny that they they didn't give a platform to people that, with the you know the non orthodox views about this, and he didn't say that in the future they're going to expand their concept of what is heterodoxy or anything like that. He just ignored it because clearly they have no interest in heterodoxy about this topic. Yeah, I, I just want to say that, yes, we did invite uh, John Tomasi to either attend as a participant himself or to send someone. So if you're out there in the audience, uh, please do, uh, uh, you know, contribute if you so feel. But also, I would just like to mention that we've invited John Tomasi on as a as a, as a guest in this webinar. Uh, we have yet to hear from him. Uh, but, uh, you know, we want to air uh, this whole controversy in, in full. Um, so, uh, so. I don't really see Heterox Academy. This is my personal feeling right now. I've actually been a member of Heterox Academy since year one, by the way, still am a member. Uh, but um, I, I, I don't get the feeling that they are especially friendly to conservatives, nothing hostile or nothing exclusionary, but uh, it, it is, as you say, an organization that's kind of steeped in center at the left uh, liberalism. So in your view, um, what do you think that Heterox Academy should be doing to uh, actually live up to its name? Well, you know, I was really excited about Heterox Academy in whatever it was, I think, uh, December 2015, whenever, mm -hmm. when it was founded. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was a graduate student at the time, and uh, at the, they didn't let graduate students join, but I, I certainly mm -hmm. would have. Yeah. Um, at the time I was eligible to join, uh, they had already uh, sold out, so uh, <laughs> I didn't bother. Uh, what, they, what I thought they were going to do, what everyone I knew thought they were going to do, was they were going to um, use their network. They had a number of prominent scholars associated uh, with the organization to give a platform for people with you know, non-orthodox views on the important subjects, particularly race, um, and that they would use their influence to protect people, um, to help create job opportunities, and uh, um, and uh, use their prestige to uh, you know draw attention to what's happening and to the discrimination against uh, dissident thinkers. They didn't do any of that. I mean, they they gave themselves. Know, kind of prominent positions now they've got i guess they have millions of dollars of donor money i don't know what they've they've done with it um now they have some offices in new york and they put on these conferences they have a fancy website um you know it's like somebody like uh, you know bo weingard can be fired uh he was a psychologist at marietta college fired for writing uh, an article about race differences and uh what does heterodox academy do nothing they're not interested amy wax uh, her job is now uh, under threat. Um, Heterodox Academy has uh, zero zero interest in that. Well, I mean, under the conferences, people say that, yeah, it's great that Amy Wax is being persecuted. That's good. That's what Heterodox Academy has contributed. So they've been extremely selective about who they uh, who they support. Basically, they're not going to support anybody who crosses the line. Um, so, and, you know, also, there needs to be some cooperation with politicians because, um, some of uh, you know, some of the the problems have been caused by government intervention and the, the you know the Title IX and the um, you know the rule the diversity stuff. A lot of it comes from uh, directly or indirectly from laws. Uh, that okay, that's uh, Nathan Kaufness. I hope to have him on the show 4 a.m. on Friday. We're going to debate the JQ. And uh, meanwhile, I've just been luxuriating in reading the New York Review of Books. I mean, it, it's such a great publication. So 
recent issue, they talked about Maria Montessori, all right, the founder of the Montessori method. So from early days, she identified as a feminist and as a socialist. She began a relationship with a young psychiatrist in 1895. She laid down some non-negotiable ground rules. Her medical career came first. She would never marry and that their relationship must be kept private. Well, she became pregnant. And then, all right, the founder of the Montessori School of Education gave her child up to, <laughs> to an orphanage, right? And so she would just kind of look out at her child, her infant, her child playing. But uh, finally, in 1913, when her boy was 15, right, she saw the lady whose visits had punctuated his childhood, meaning visits just out on the outskirts of his childhood, looking in at her. And so a car stopped where he was resting, Mario. She got out, he went up to her, and he said simply, I know you're my mother, told her he wanted to go with her. She made no objection, he got into the car with her. Uh, so one former elementary school teacher who was very impressed with the Montessori method was the fascist Benito Mussolini. 1924, he donated 10,000 lira of his own money to help found the opera Montessori. He saw the advantage of Montessori methods for producing industrious, disciplined, and literate future citizens, and Maria Montessori was absolutely devoted. So in 1931, she wrote to Mussolini, My method can collaborate with fascism so that it will realize the possibilities to construct great spiritual energies, create a real mental hygiene, that when applied to our race can enhance its enormous powers that I am certain outstrip the powers of all the other races. That's Maria Montessori. And then also in this March 2023 issue of the New York Review of Books and having the last word, an essay on Janet Malcolm. So Janet Malcolm made her reputation writing about people who didn't know when to shut up. Most of us like to talk about ourselves particularly when our words are going to appear on the page. So this psychoanalyst, Jeffrey Musset, Mason told Janet Malcolm about his many achievements, including his sex life, and then he sued her for defamation when he discovered what a New Yorker reporting had made of him, claiming that he'd been misquoted. He trusted her. He thought he'd found a sympathetic listener. He hadn't, nor had he been misquoted. Then a few years later, the murderer, Jeffrey McDonald, thought that he too had found such a listener in the journalist, Joe McGuinness. His contract for Fatal Vision, 1983, was predicated on the access he gained by pretending to believe that Jeffrey McDonald was innocent. When the killer learned what the writer really thought of him, he sued as well. Then Malcolm turned the case into her classic book, The Journalist and the Murderer. So the first sentence of this book is to make writers quite angry. Now it merely seems true. She wrote, Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on, knows that what he does is morally indefensible. So the writer needs to keep the subject talking, but at the same time, that subject is worriedly striving to keep the writer listening. He lives in fear of being found uninteresting and offers a childish trust to any remotely willing ear, which the journalist then promptly betrays. So Janice Malcolm knew that and did that, even though it troubled her. At times, she wrote as though writing itself made her uneasy. Yet that moral calculus also made her angry first at those fellow practitioners of journalism who refused to recognize their predatory relation to their sources, and then at the credulity of the sources themselves. Don't these people know that writers are always selling someone out? So uh, one 
summary of this is that uh, the essence of being a great journalist is to know how to charm and then know how to betray. So Janet Malcolm's most characteristic material lies in the fight between members of a tightly linked group for control of the narrative that binds them. A fight between people who have come to know each other too well. Then another terrific article here in the New Yorker on a book on literary criticism. So it says literary criticism can be regarded as an innovation of the 1920s, like the lie detector, water skiing, the timed traffic light, and the bread slicer. And all these pitch battles over curriculum and literary methods waged both inside and outside the profession, largely beside the point given literature's dwindling share of the cultural pie. So it does not matter how politically ambitious the aims of literary study might be if literature itself continues to contract in social importance. So by the late 1960s, the literary professoriate had begun to tire of producing readings of literary works. So rather than finding something to do with literature beside interpret it, they simply moved on to producing interpretations of everything, films, works of visual art, philosophical systems, archival documents, feelings, society itself. So a door was opened leading beyond literature to all of culture, but having passed through this magic portal, it is difficult then to return to literature and to be content with that object. So one, one person defines literary criticism as the profession of the unprofessional. Then Jeffrey Wheatcroft writes in March 2023, the New York Review of Books, about, uh, about six new books on the Tory party in England. 2022 in England will be remembered as the year of two monarchs and three prime ministers, not to mention four chancellors of the exchequer, that's the equivalent of our secretary of the treasury, five education secretaries, and more than 30 resignations from the government. The author says, when I sent half ironical congratulations to a don, that means a professor at uh, Oxford, Rishi Sunak, the current British prime minister's uh, alma mater, on the ascent of their eminent alumnus, the professor replied, we're very proud of Rishi Sunak, and we hope that he lasts at least a year. So what uh, distinguishes the Tories nowadays isn't marital infidelity or sexual variety so much as sheer squalor. So in England, the vice of the lower classes is fornication, the vices of the middle classes is adultery, and the vice of the upper classes in England is incest. So one Tory MP was imprisoned for sexual abuse of minors. One was forced to resign from Parliament when a female MP sitting in the Chamber of Commons noticed he was looking at pornography on his cell phone. And another, Chris Pincher, was seen at a party at the Carlton Club fondling the groins of younger men, to which the Prime Minister Boris Johnson responded, Pincher by name, Pincher by nature. Now Matt Hancock, former minister in Boris Johnson's government, had his political career ended when a CCTV camera caught him in a passionate embrace in his ministerial office with a colleague who proved to be also his mistress, and thus he was transgressing the lockdown rules as well as the Seventh Commandment. So Matt Hancock has since appeared on a grotesque reality program eating the genitals of exotic animals. <laughs> so he looks more and more like our present-day answer to the rector of Stifke. We all know and celebrate the life of the rector of Stifke, like he was defrocked in the 1930s for devoting excessive pastoral care to chorus girls, and he ended his days exhibiting himself in a barrel at a circus before, sad to say, he was mauled by a lion. 
Well, Boris Johnson was mishandling the COVID pandemic. He would address the nation on TV in his rambling, bumbling manner, which prompted the political journalist Robert Harris to observe as we listened to Boris Johnson blathering on with his feeble excuses and totally unconvincing explanations, we all realize what being married to him must be like. And so although Boris Johnson's fall has been caught unexpected, it was surely overdetermined. He always had a transactional relationships with MPs, members of parliament, who knew very well that he was a seedy, treacherous character. Right? It sounds very much like the Republicans' relationship with Donald Trump. Uh, so Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, ruthlessly ambitious, totally unprincipled opportunists, never believed in anything in their lives apart from self-advancement and self-gratification. So while they supported Boris as long as he could win an election, the Tories always sensed he was a series of accidents waiting to happen. Very same thing could be said about Donald Trump. And the chat's just going wild. They love British politics. So the first names of the last four French finance ministers. All right, name them. Bruno, Michel, Pierre, and Francois. First names of the last four German counterparts. Christian, Olaf, Peter, and Wolfgang. Of the American secretaries of the treasury, Janet, Stephen, Jack, and Timothy. The four successive chancellors of the Exchequer in Great Britain till last October were called Sajid, Rishi, Nadhim and Kwasi. Right, there's no other European country where four people with such names could have risen to such an office. So three of the highest officers in Great Britain now, the Premiership and the two historic Secretaryships of State, are now held by people of color. Foreign Secretary is James Cleverly. His mother was from Sierra Leone. Home Secretary is Suella Braverman. His parents were Indian by way of Mauritius and Kenya. And the Prime Minister, of course, is originally of Indian origin. So, veneration of Winston Churchill is a dogma of the Tory party. But uh, he was a racist, guys. He once told a colleague that the Hindus were a foul race. They deserved to be extirpated. At his last cabinet meeting in 1955, over which he presided as prime minister, he said that the Tories should fight the next election on the slogan, Keep England White. At the Conservative Party conference the following year, one of the speakers was the venerable Captain Charles Waterhouse, veteran of World War I and an MP since the 1920s and a great conference favorite. In his speech, he used the phrase N-word in the woodpile, and he didn't say N-word, and added in a stage aside, too many of them about anyway, and he brought the house down with raucous laughter. So this is a time in the 1950s when recently arrived immigrants from the West Indies faced gross discrimination. So there's one story here where a pious Anglican woman, like many West Indians, went to her local parish church where the vicar told her, thank you for coming, but I would be delighted if you didn't come back. My congregation is uncomfortable in the presence of black people. How crazy is that? I mean, isn't this like the first time in human history where one in-group is uncomfortable with the presence of a very different out-group? Truly shocking sentiments. And then Jeffrey Wheatcroft concludes, I'm haunted by the memory of the speech that the Albanian dictator Enver Hoxha made to his unfortunate people one January long ago. This year will be harder than last year. On the other hand, it will be easier the next year. 
That's a great line. Which now we need the government to undo what the government did. And somebody who is you know, you know, doing what Heterodox Academy claims to do should be uh, looking at those uh, possibilities for that. Now, Tomasi said, well, they can't, they can't be involved in politics because they're a 501c3 organization, which I thought was uh, kind of a cop-out because for several reasons. And first, um, Heterodox Academy is more than the legal entity, right? So yeah, you can't use Heterodox Academy funds to rent a, a conference hall and, and uh, stand at the podium and say, I endorse you know, Ron DeSantis for, mm-hmm. for president. But okay, but John Haidt could have you know, done something. You know, he, was, he and some other people are Heterodox Academy, even when they're not you know, legally participating yeah. uh, in Heterodox Academy. And they didn't have to go out of their way to alienate Republicans because yeah. despite being a 501c3 organization, there was plenty of Republican bashing and why Trump is bad and, uh, at their conferences. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing that actually prohibits a 501c3 organization from talking to legislators or talking to people about political issues. You know, as you say, we just cannot engage in uh, explicit uh, political activity like endorsing candidates. Uh, so uh, we're just about to. It's just about time to go to the uh, to the questions. But I, uh, before we uh, go there, I, I would just like to. And uh, that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye bye. And uh, good night, Kiev. Are you with me in Kiev tonight? Are you with me? I can't hear you, Kiev. Speak up, bro. Bye-bye.